There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now here are your hosts, Kim Foskey and Dr. Dana Saperstein. So Dana, I think as you know, uh, dependency has scared the shit out of me my entire life. Um, I think if the people that have listened to this podcast probably fully understand, um, that, uh, I probably have lived my life not counting on other people. And it's kind of been later on in life that I've had to fully embrace receiving and fully embrace that if I'm going to be in a healthy relationship, I'm going to have to understand what healthy dependency is. So I think uh, to, to start this podcast is is for you to give us an interpretation on dependency and probably the healthy side of it and the unhealthy side of dependency. Uh, you know, Kim, um, I think that the concept of dependency is looked at very much like the concept of fear, that we think that fear is the problem. And you and I have talked about the idea that fear is not the problem. It's how you deal with it. Same thing is true with dependency. Dependency is not the issue. It's how we choose to deal with our needs that determines the outcome. And like most things, uh, we throw the baby out with the bathwater. That if being dependent means being hurt, then we'll just not be dependent and that'll solve all of our problems. There is an inherent fallacy in looking at things that way because as human beings, in my opinion, we are the most dependent species on the face of the earth. If you look at our birth as an example, how long do we rely on our mothers, fathers, or whoever takes care of us before we're actually capable of taking care of ourselves? At least a decade, probably longer than that. I was going to say some of us much longer than others. Exactly. Or but, shorter than others. Yeah, but I mean, if you look at human beings, they, they do not function as human beings if they are left without caretakers prior to maybe 12, 13 years old. If you look at orphans in places like Brazil, as an example, where there is no uh, government support for kids that are abandoned, uh, those kids stay alive by forming groups, and they rove like animals. And uh, they do whatever they need to to do to survive, but they don't develop a conscience, and um, they live pretty much like animals for their whole lives. That doesn't mean that they're not dependent. They depend on each other for their survival, but they don't ever grow up to be relatively healthy people because they've never been able to feel a sense of security and never been able to feel dependent on someone to take care of them. So they have to take care of themselves. Um, I think that all of us have to struggle in some ways with our needs to feel connected to other people and to find a way to do that safely. Um, if you think about the fact that you're born helpless, then pretty much your parents determine how you come to terms with the concept of dependency. If your parents are capable of taking proper care of you and they love you and they provide you with a sense of security um, and they don't require you to be anything other than who and what you are, then pretty much you're going to be comfortable being dependent 
on the people that you feel a connection to. The problem is that that rarely happens. And so we naturally develop this notion that if I just don't depend on anybody, then I'll be safe and nobody will hurt me. So, so why does that not naturally happen in humans? Because if you look at other mammals and, and other species out there, they're definitely connected to their, their mothers, their fathers, whoever the primary caregiver is for that mammal. And they, and they survive really well. They evolve and get turned on to their own, on their own. Um, but we as humans, that's not the typical case. Well, I think it has to do with how developed your cortex is. Um, uh, animals rely mostly on instinct in their relationship to the world. And uh, I think that the parents of baby animals um, rely on their instincts to take care of their young and help them survive. And um, there's no shaming process that comes into the picture. There's no requirements for their, their babies to be anything other than what they are. Um, and so they get to develop in a much more natural way. Now, I will say that most animals don't live as long as uh, human beings do. Maybe that has something to do with it. But also the fact that you are that you have a fully developed cortex means that you can put yourself in another person's shoes, and it can you know it involves the concept of uh, uh, empathy and all kinds of other feelings that I don't really believe that animals have. So it's a bit more complicated with us human beings um, in that uh, we're helpless for a really long period of time. We're oh. usually I was going to say, we think too much. Yes, we think too much. And we're usually shamed and made to feel bad about our needs for love and, and connection, unless we are absolutely willing to, uh, to be our parents' uh, mini-me. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to say that parents do this on purpose. Some do, most don't, because uh, all families have values and ideas of what their kids should be like and so on and so forth. And uh, in cultures like the United States, where independence, in quote, is valued, then we're made to feel really ashamed of needing our parents right from very early age. Uh, we, we've talked before about this idea that um, uh, you should train your little babies to, to put themselves to sleep and be independent as quickly as possible. Now, I've uh, had lots of uh, heated discussions with people about that concept because I think it's a criminal thing to do. I think that babies are not capable of taking care of themselves uh, for at least the first couple of years of them, their lives, um, and that they really need their parents and need to feel connected to them, especially at vulnerable times like going to sleep. But that's inconvenient for us because it means we've got to share our beds with our babies and, and allow them to feel that sense of comfort. But if you think about it, if you had the choice between sleeping with somebody that you love or sleeping by yourself, what would you do? Oh, you want me to answer that question? Yeah, what would you do? <laughs> well, I probably... Uh, Want to sleep with somebody you love. Yeah, of right? course. It's the most natural thing. So why would your little children not want to sleep with you? They're their source of security and comfort. I know it's inconvenient. I can't tell how many times I got kicked in the nuts by my little kids when they were in my bed. I didn't enjoy that part of it. But it sure was sweet to snuggle with them and to help them feel a sense of, of comfort for the first number of years of their life. And I don't think there's anything wrong with 
uh, people that love each other being really dependent on each other. But I know I'm an outlier as far as that goes because I was going to say I think it's still a polarizing issue even in 2022 about oh, sure. co- about co-sleeping with your children. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, most pediatricians would shame you if you said I want to have family bed because again, it's not the American way. We're supposed to be uh, independent and take care of ourselves. Thank you very much. Now, the problem is that if you spend your life in quotes being independent, your behavior is actually more dependent than people that accept dependency because your behavior is strictly based on being independent. It makes you increasingly dependent on that fighting the natural part of who you are. I hope that makes sense the way I described it. No, it did. I was thinking about that as you were saying it, and it feels appropriate. It means going against the natural part of the feelings that you have of wanting to be safe. Because everybody wants to feel safe and everybody wants to feel connected and loved. And dependency is a pathway toward those feelings. Now, the, the hard part is that if dependency is okay, then why does it turn out so badly a lot of the time? That's the, the major question that people ask me when I say to them, well, maybe dependency is not your problem. Maybe, maybe it's something else. And, you know, then they say, well, what could that be? And my response is always, well, who do you choose to depend on? Wouldn't that matter more than, than anything? That if you choose somebody who is uh, of integrity and, and, um, and not somebody that's going to take advantage of you or, or exploit you, then your needs are going to be met and you're going to feel really safe and loved. So it's a matter of choosing who to give your heart to and who to allow yourself to depend on more than anything else. Because you're never going to get over the need to be dependent on someone if you decide you want to live a life connected to other people. In theory, that sounds really good. In practicality, that almost sounds impossible. Uh, I think it takes a lot of work. It certainly has taken a lot of work on my part because I was brought up as an empath taking care of the people that I came into the world with and that I believed that my responsibility was to manage their pain and that my connection to them was to care for them in ways that they didn't realize and I didn't at the time, but it sure was burdensome to feel all the pain and have the people in my life that were responsible for my welfare not really take responsibility for their pain. So it was up to me. So I grew up like everybody else, thinking that needing other people was the problem and that um, I could be in a relationship with someone but not need them and that would solve the issue of, uh, of dependency. But I was grossly in error with that because every time I felt connected to somebody, I didn't want to live without them. And what is more dependent than that? So can you give an example of, of a healthy, dependent relationship? Uh, I can, but I've, I get a lot of flack for what I say because, well, I can talk about my own relationship with my wife. That's good because your name's on the podcast. So yes. Um, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> I am helplessly dependent on my wife. I don't want to live without her. I rely on her in all kinds of ways. I adore her and I don't want to live without her. I know that I could survive if she died, but I certainly wouldn't want to. I feel that connected to her and I feel like she's that much a part of my life. So, so that's a bad, I mean, you're, you're saying it like that's a bad thing. No, I've been told that it's a sign of weakness, but to me it doesn't feel bad at all. It actually gives me strength to know that, that I've chosen well because so far she's not betrayed me in any way that uh, has compromised my connection to her. I feel the same way about my kids. I don't want to live without them. I love being close to them and um, I wouldn't want them to live in my house, but I'd be really happy if they lived next door or across the street and we could see each other as often as we want to. Um, 
I'll, I'll obviously want them to have their own private lives, but, um, you know, I have one kid who loves to travel and every time he's away for extended periods of time, I feel like one of my limbs is missing because I really depend on him to feel a sense of well-being and connection in my life. That puts me in a very vulnerable position. And I understand that being dependent uh, is a sure recipe for vulnerability, if that makes sense. Um, you can't does. You cannot be connected to somebody and really love them deeply without being extremely vulnerable to what would happen if you lose them. Yeah, it's like being all in, right? It's not one foot in, in, one foot out, right? It's, right. You right. don't have the the shield up protecting yourself. You're no, and I choose really carefully who I give my heart to because I know that when I become attached to somebody, it's it's for me, it's pretty much all or nothing. So I choose my friends wisely. I choose the people you know that I connect with, and I make sure that I vet them to a place where. I really know that they're trustworthy and they're loyal and that, you know, it's not like we're not going to hurt each other. My wife and I have hurt each other many times, but not purposefully. And I know that I can depend on her like she can depend on me to try to resolve whatever comes up. And that provides a sense of security. So, so you talked about the, the positive or healthy side of dependency. Uh What is the unhealthy side of dependency look like? Well, I, you know, I can use my life as an example. Again, my parents uh, lived a very miserable marriage with each other. My father was unfaithful from the beginning of their marriage, even before I was born. Um, my mother was desperate to be connected to him, so she was willing to compromise her integrity in order to stay with him because uh, she didn't feel like she could live in the world without him. Um, my dad was a very uh, uh, obese person, and guess who was in charge of uh, buying the food? Your mom. Exactly. And guess what she bought? Lots of food. Well, everything that he couldn't, he <laughs> couldn't resist. Carbohydrates and sugar. Yes. Everything that my father was unable to resist, my mother made sure the closets were full of it, and that was her insurance policy that my dad would continue to hate himself and then wouldn't leave her. And, you know, she spent her time shaming him, and he spent his time telling her how stupid she was, but um, they figured out a way to stay married for 25 years before my father finally uh, got tired of all that and found another person um, and started another family. So, so you and I talked before we started recording about the actual term codependency, because yes. I think a lot of people were listening to that thinking they were codependent right. upon each other. You have a little bit of a different take on uh, on actually whether that term codependency is actually relevant or not? Well, I, I think it's been a number one overused, and it's a term that's um, made to pathologize people and make them feel ashamed of them, themselves for needing other people. No, I'm not going to say that some relationships don't have an aspect of dependency that's really unhealthy. Uh, if you think about somebody who's an alcoholic, who's you know, spouse buys the alcohol and makes sure that it's always there. That was my situation. Yeah, I would say that that's a fairly unhealthy relationship. I wouldn't call it codependent in a certain way. I would say that um, those people made an, a, an unholy alliance with each other to stay together, and they both knew what their roles were. I guess if you want to call it codependent, you can. But it gives voice to dependency as being the problem. And we are, as prey animals completely dependent upon each other for our survival. So even though we have become predators based on our intellect and the weapons we build and the ways we treat other people, uh, we don't have big fangs and we don't have big claws. So by biology, we are 
uh, very much prey animals. And if you look at, as an example, how monkeys live with each other, uh, they don't own separate condos that they go and visit each other, right? They all live in the same place and they're all over each other and they sleep on top of each other. And, and the only monkeys that are, that are segregated are the sick ones that end up consuming maybe they want to get rid of the sick ones because, you know, they no longer have any value sort of to keeping the society of monkeys going. And the adolescent males, which everybody knows are a pain in the ass in any species. So they keep the animal, the, the male adolescents out of the picture because they don't want them spreading their gene pool into the population until they're old enough to fight for their share of the female monkeys. But otherwise they're all over each other because it's the, the you know, the more insulated you are with your, fellow monkeys, the less likely it is you're going to be consumed by a predator. Do you think dependencies changed over time? You, you and I come from a generation where our mothers were from the Betty Crocker mold, right? That, that the woman had a role um, being a good wife, um, keeping the house up, taking care of the kids, making sure her husband was fed. Um, and there was that I don't want to call it traditional role. It was a traditional role back in the 50s and 60s uh-huh. um, to now where there is a stance out there from women saying, I don't need a man. And, and maybe that's a projection of the times, but it, maybe dependency has changed or, or the perception of dependency has changed. Well, I think people are encouraged to uh, convince themselves that they don't need other people. And made to feel ashamed of the fact that they do. Um, and so naturally, a part of our culture is going to say, well, I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I can do it on my own. I think that's a very unhealthy stance to take because it ensures loneliness and isolation. Um, but again, if you're made to feel really ashamed of the fact that you're lonely and that you wish you had a partner, you know, you can always say, well, I don't need anybody. And I don't, you know, I don't rely on anybody and I'm just fine. And I just have a hard time really... I mean, I know there are some people maybe that are capable of that, but I think most of us really need a connection with each other. Um, I had a sister who died from cancer uh, maybe 15 years ago, and that was probably the most painful uh, experience I ever had in the name of dependency because I loved my sister dearly and was really connected to her, and we really depended a lot on each other for most of our lives. And especially as adults, we were really, really close. And when she died, it absolutely broke my heart. And I I had to think really long and hard about whether I was ever going to let anybody into my heart as deeply as I let her, because it hurt so much to lose her. And I thought about it for a long time. And then finally, I realized if I'm going to encourage people to love each other, and to be connected to each other, I can't be a hypocrite and, and fold up my tent and you know, and go hide somewhere because I lost somebody that I really loved. So like a weird person I am, I went to the extreme and I took a, a poll of all my friends uh, in my mind. And I thought, I wonder who I can ask to become my siblings in the place of losing my sister. So there was one woman and three men who I dearly loved. And I called each one up and I said, hey, you know, I lost my sister. Would you consider being my brother or sister? like formally, and then we can, can we make that commitment to each other for the rest of our lives? Because I really miss having a sister. That was a very psychology forward take on your behalf, <laughs> by the way. Well, it was, I it, don't know if many people would think of, 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 and I'm not saying replacing your sister, but thinking uh-huh. of, of 
in a sense, how can somebody take that role? Well, nobody could ever replace my sister, but that doesn't mean I can't have other sisters that fill the need that I have to have a sister and some additional brothers. Uh, luckily, the woman that I called is somebody I'd known for 40 years, and uh, uh, she was a person who I, I knew that we really cared for each other. Luckily, she was not a threat to my wife because she was good friends with her. And so it was easy for me to invite her, and she actually started crying when I asked her and said that was the most lovely thing she'd ever heard in her entire life. And now we call each other brother and sister, and we really look at each other as being uh, siblings, even though biologically we're not. And the, the guys that I asked to be my brothers kindly agreed, even though they probably thought I was nuts. And um, not that we weren't close before, but now we're even closer than we were before because I try to include them as a part of my family and, um, you know, very much like yourself, come to celebrations and be connected to, uh, you know, to my family and know them and then they get to know you and we develop a really strong, hopefully, connection with each other. Absolutely. And, be and, and become dependent on each other. I mean, I don't know if you ever think about our relationship, but you and I are very dependent uh, on each other. We are, and it just kind of sent a shiver down my spine but when I hear that word still. Yes, I, I realize that, and I'm sorry I never used that word before. But No, I think I, I think I need to hear it, right? When yes. I was talking about trying to embrace receiving, and, uh -huh. and dependency is, is the same thing. Right. It's just that, that familiar, you know, pathologizing of, of, in my mind, what dependency actually means and was right. raised not to be dependent on anybody because I couldn't trust anybody in my life. And, right. and I'm finally at a stage now where I can not only conceptually understand it, but want that in my life. It's just that right. familiar patterning of that uncomfortable feeling that I still have to overcome and be cognizant of actually how you eloquently talked about healthy dependency. Right. Um, realize that that is actually the concept, that it can be healthy, that it isn't strictly unhealthy. Well, and when I decided to write a book and do the podcast, like, or the book especially, uh, I told you that I thought about everybody that I knew, and your image came into my mind. And part of what I needed to think about was that, um, how much can I trust Kim? How much can I rely on him? How much really can I depend on him to be my partner in this endeavor? You probably trust me more than I trust myself. Well, and, and I didn't have any hesitation because I know what kind of person that you are. And I know that you take your relationships really seriously and you're a very committed uh, person and that your feelings are very deep. And the more I figured that we connected with each other, the more that we would come to depend on each other. And that feels very safe to me. I don't, I don't feel any discomfort saying that I depend oh, on you. Oh, no. And I think you're right through this evolution of the last couple of years of the book and, and now the podcast coming up on a year pretty soon. Um, I totally feel that yep. now. I mean, I have and, a and it's been, a, and it's been a good thing, right? It hasn't right. been this, this negative thing or this nebulous thing or this thing right. that I have to keep one foot in one foot out because I'm not sure. Right. Right. I mean, when you asked me, when you asked me to do it and, and I guess I'll, I'll pat myself a little on the back here is that, when I said no two or three times, um, when I finally realized that it was the right thing to do, I did go in with both feet in. Right, right. And and knowing that pretty much I was going to count on that it was going to be a very good experience, which it, which been actually better than than pretty good. Right. Um, and not think, oh, you know, it's probably going to end badly. You know, like a lot of things have in my life that I've set up 
in that way in my mind right. and just confirmed where um, I had to get rid of that thinking. Yes. So. Well, and again, I will say probably the, the, the thing in my life that has solidified the issue of dependency is the physical problems that I had had to endure. Um, as I've said in other podcasts, I've come close to dying many times, maybe three or four times now. And a few of those times I was so completely sort of physically disabled temporarily that I could not really take care of myself without my wife and my children uh, being there for me. And I resisted hugely at first and both on all three of them came to me and said, you know, what the fuck is your problem? You have taken such good care of us. Why don't you let us take care of you and just stop being, you know, such a butt about it. And I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe it's time that I learn how to really surrender. Because certainly in my spiritual life, I feel like I have surrendered to my version of God. And I feel completely uh, dependent on that relationship. And it, it's done nothing but serve me really well in many ways. And so um, why not allow myself to be taken care of in my moments of, uh, of deep need and vulnerability? And I'm lucky so far it's turned out well, so I can't look back and think, God, I made a stupid mistake. Why didn't I just keep myself, you know, uh, disconnected? Yeah, I think probably in, in we do the postmortem on those things about, you know, we've, we've purposely kept people out of our life or we've not done certain things um, or we haven't gone in with both feet. Generally, I think when we think about it afterwards, um, we held ourselves back. Right. From, from something right. actually really good. Yes. And that. So we're, we're talking about relationships and, and, and dependency. Um, I think all of us know somebody that always has a need to be in a relationship. Um, right. Whether that is a single person or, or a person that gets divorced and gets remarried and gets divorced and gets remarried. Um, what's that all about? Um, I don't know if that's really a, a question of dependency as it is um, that the person is looking um, to the outside to fill them up. And it's not that you don't get filled up in your relationships with other people, but you also have to be willing to, uh, to um, be connected to yourself on a deep level internally. I think the people that go from relationship to relationship it's almost like it's a drug and and that they're medicating themselves with that feeling of being in love for a week at a time or however long it lasts. Instead of morphine, it's just dopamine, dopamine head. Right. I, I certainly know that there are people who uh, use sex as a drug, just like food and many other things. And I think some for some people, relationships are a drug. And, you know, I, I remember once I had this friend who... She was in a different relationship maybe every two weeks. And the, and the, and when she first met the person, he was the absolute love of her life. And she just was walking on the moon with excitement. And then, you know, he would do something that would somehow dampen the, the fantasy. And then two weeks later, oh, I hate that guy. He's stupid or whatever. And I would think to myself, wow. When the, when the chemical level dropped a bit. Yes. And I think that really what she was doing was juicing herself up with dopamine, basically. And that feeling of elation that comes when, uh, you know, we meet somebody that appears to be the answer to our dreams. And I'm not saying that there aren't people that we can meet that are the answer to our dreams, but usually it's not a two-week relationship. 
How, how about the fear of being alone? Well, and I think that propels a lot of people uh, toward relationships that are maybe not as healthy as they could be. Because the, a lot of times people make excuses when they know that it's not the right relationship for them, but they're so afraid of being alone and have been so defeated by other people that they met that they just sort of hope their partner's going to change or they figure they can change their partner or somehow come up with magic that was going to um, make everything work out okay. Because being alone is, is difficult for a lot of people. The, the magical thinking theory, again. Yes, it gets back to that notion of of solving your problems by... Uh, discounting what you feel and using magical thought in order to solve a problem. So you see in your practice, uh, I'm sure a fair amount of, of couples that are having relationship problems that are probably on the borders of, of divorce or, or separation. Um, I'm assuming that dependency in some way plays a role in that. You know, Kim, I really actually think it does because Women have an easier time acknowledging dependency because they're not as made, not made to feel as ashamed of their need for a relationship as men. You know, most men approach relationships feeling like it's, it's their job to fix whatever a problem might be or fix whatever situation where might be. And uh, I think that's a way of avoiding intimacy and dependency in a certain way because you're living a role rather than really being connected to the person. Um, so I, I often talk to people about the concept of depending on each other and what there is about their partner that they can depend on and what it is that's getting in the way from them being able to depend on feeling safe with their partner. Uh, because if you can get to a place where you can solve those kinds of issues, then sometimes you can actually heal the relationship because it really scares people to be close to each other. I think the hardest thing for most of us is to be in a deep, intimate, emotional relationship with someone. I, I, I heard from a friend of mine the other day when uh, he was having, talking about difficulties he was having with his partner. And the first question I asked him was, have you talked about it with her? And he goes, I can't do that. <laughs> well, how does he expect to solve the problem? I, that, was, that, was my, that was my, you know, response to him as well. He goes, no, I can't, I can't go there. I can't go there with her. Because it, because he, he felt that it was just going to open up Pandora's box. She would take offense to it, and I think he's completely fearful she's going to leave if he speaks his truth. Well, and he may be onto something. She actually may do that, or he may be using it as an excuse so he doesn't have to show up. So isn't that, isn't that a level of dependency? When you can't, when you're walking on eggshells around your partner, you you can't speak your truth, and that you're fearful of them leaving. And, I think that's it, the opposite of dependency. I think it's a, it's a an attempt to remain removed from somebody that you need, so that you can feel safe. I think that it's an excuse for him to tell himself, "Well, I can't depend on this person because she'll leave me if I tell her the truth." So it's a way of being safe, but pretty much guarantees you a life of loneliness. And it's more likely she'll leave him if he doesn't try to solve the problems than if he does. Because, you know, oftentimes, if you don't approach things, people think you don't care about them. And so he may think he's avoiding problems, and his partner may feel, well, he just doesn't care about me because he never talks about anything, he never brings anything up. So his notion that he's uh, saving the marriage 
by not bringing things up is going to be interpreted by her as he doesn't care about me and he doesn't care enough about me to try to solve any of the issues we have. It creates a big misunderstanding. So we, we talked about this at the, the beginning of this conversation. When does the, the dependency issue really start manifesting itself in, in, in your life? Well, from the moment that you're born and you need to depend on your mom or whoever your caretakers are to feed you and comfort you and, um, uh, you know, keep you warm and safe and all of that, you're helpless, completely helplessly dependent on somebody for your survival for a very long period of time. So, so if that's, so if that's true, yeah, right. Where do the lines start getting blurred where we start entering into adult relationships in our life and we got one foot in, one foot out. We can't be completely vulnerable with our partner. We don't want to speak our truth. We don't want to show our emotion. And then we start creating that familiar pattern that goes from relationship to relationship. Or we stay in a, a unhealthy, I don't want to say de-evolving, but not evolving relationship that just kind of just sits there like a ship out in the middle of the ocean, not going anywhere. You know, Kim, I think it starts really early in your life. I can give you an example. Uh, again, a lot of people are going to get mad at me, but sleep training. You're training your year-old or your 18-month-old to sleep by him or herself, thinking that you're doing that child a big favor by teaching him how to self-soothe, which is a common psychological term. You're asking a year-old kid to do something that he or she is completely humanly incapable of of doing because you don't have a fully developed self at at a year old. So the only thing that you're capable of doing under those circumstances is detaching from your needs in order to fall asleep. So what you learn how to do is numb yourself and disconnect from yourself and fall asleep. And your parents are really happy that you're becoming independent at such a young age. Imagine growing up and realizing that you can't depend on anybody to properly take care of you because your needs are too much, that you're too much, that you're too hungry, you're too tired, you're too in need of comfort. And so you go to war against your needs because you're taught from a very early age that your needs are a problem because kids always think in very black and white terms. So if I just stop being hungry, if I stop being needy, if I stop needing comfort, then nobody's going to hurt me by rejecting me. So I'll just become a really good girl or a really good boy, or I'll become incredibly rebellious and fight against uh, everybody because my needs scare me so much. Um, and it starts right from the beginning. And it goes from there. You know, you become a toddler and your parents occasionally shame you into submission and uh, so on and so forth. And, and again, all a child is is a ball of impulse and, and a lack of sort of control until they're taught how to mediate their behavior. And you can either do it by shaming the kid and making him or her feel bad about himself, or you can help them understand that their behavior is not acceptable. So we, we, we fall into these familiar patterns then. And so our, our picker in terms of, of mates and, and f- friends in our life and so on and so forth tend to follow that familiar pattern then. Yes. Um, where... Uh, we're, we're picking somebody that 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 probably isn't the best for us, but actually has that that comfortable feeling, 
right? Of something that we recognize, feeling. right? Yes, it's a familiar. Yeah, I guess comfortable feeling. is not the word. Familiar is the word. Yeah. Yes. Well, if you think about what it's like to be brought up as a man, and then you start becoming involved in romantic relationships, and again, very general statement, but most men are only able to relate to women on a sexual level in any intimate sort of a way because we're allowed to be intimate with women sexually. We're allowed to surrender to that connection on a sexual level, but you're certainly not going to talk to the person about how you feel or try to work out any of the... That's that's surely going to dampen the mood. Right. Well, because, um, because that makes you weak. But being a sexual person gives you prowess and um, and a sense of manliness. So all your eggs are in one basket. And I've actually seen this happen with certain men when they get to an age where, you know, as an example, they get prostate cancer or whatever, and they can't perform sexually anymore. And it has a hugely detrimental effect on them, not just sexually, but emotionally, because it was the only way that they could be close to the women in their lives. And once that's taken away, what, what else do you have to offer? There's no commodity there. There's no connection to the person because that's how you were taught to feel connected to a woman. So we're going to use you as an example because you and Susan have been married for some 40 years, I believe. Yeah. Um, so how does your relationship continue to evolve? Because you were, you were taught, you know, uh, we were talking about, I mean, there's a big difference between meeting at 25. Right. And being married to somebody for 40 years and, 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 and in your late 60s now. And that's a, the relationship is, has morphed over, over that period of time. And, and what was important to you then isn't so important to you now. And sex changes, conversations change, kids, grandkids, and so on and so forth. So how do, how do you keep, I think that's always the rub, right, of, of how do you keep a relationship growing, right? And, and again, you uh-huh. talked about your dependency on Susan, uh-huh. right, in a, in a healthy way. But for, for somebody that was only married for 11 years and, and hasn't had a long-term relationship since then, it's, it's theoretically, I kind of know how to grow a relationship and how a relationship should grow, but it practically I haven't done it. Okay. So, so uh, you're a great example to kind of tell us how you and Susan keep evolving your relationship through all these Well, I, I, you know, I have to say that some of it is luck. I mean, I didn't know as a 20-year-old, almost 21-year-old, that I was meeting my future lifelong partner. All I knew is when I first laid eyes on her, uh, I fell madly in love at first sight and couldn't get enough of her and... Uh, she just felt so fundamentally different than any other woman that I'd ever been with. Not that I had, you know, hundreds of experiences before them, but certainly enough to know that this person, there was something different about her. I just felt sort of a visceral connection to her in a way that I had never experienced before. Um, I was in a lot of therapy at the time. And uh, once we committed to each other in a serious way, I asked her if she would go to therapy and start to do some self-exploration so that, um, uh, things on the level of self-understanding was more balanced. I was really lucky that she said yes um, and that the therapy experience she had was quite useful to her. And those experiences taught us how to communicate and how to be present to each other and how to work on our issues and how to uh, be respectful. We also made an agreement very early on that 
if anybody ever entered our relationship that before that we were attracted to and could, you know, create a problem that before we did anything stupid, we would talk to each other. Cause I watched my dad be unfaithful to my mom during their whole marriage. And I watched my mom be unfaithful to herself during their whole marriage. And it did nothing but create hostility and disrespect. And so luckily she was willing to agree to the idea that we neither one of us would ever know what the future brings, but at least we would have an agreement that before anything stupid happened, we'd talk to each other. And I believe she's kept that agreement. I know that I have. And so with that kind of security built in place that we're there for the long term and that no matter what happens, we're committed to each other, it sort of um, kind of cements this notion that no matter what comes up, we're going to work it out. You know, the other thing that I think is really important is to try and not blame the other person for whatever problems come up. Because uh, when I realize what a pain in the ass I am to live with and that, uh, um, that I'm not an easy person to live with, even though I really feel like I'm a good person and that I, um, you know, and all of that stuff, I don't feel bad about myself, but I also recognize that, that, I, that I have it much easier than she does. Right? She's got to put up with me. I have to put up with her, but she's so much easier to put up with than I am because she's a more graceful, kind, uh, patient, maybe gentle person than I am. Right. But also she's told me what I brought to the relationship that wasn't a part of the way that she came into the world in terms of, you know, being an unusual person, being a bit of a risk taker, being somebody who uh, is not externally focused. I, I, I am really fortunate in that I if I like you and you're connected to me, I care a great deal about how you see me and how you feel about me. But generally speaking, I don't really care that much about how people look at me and how they feel about me. And so that gives me the freedom to just kind of be who I am, which is sometimes a pain in the ass. Because, you know, if you don't like me, I don't care, unless it's somebody that I really want to like me or whatever. But generally speaking, I am not a person that is dependent on other people to reassure me uh, of my value. And, and my wife is somebody who's different than that in that she was brought up to be completely uh, dependent on other people's opinions and feelings about her. And so we struggled a bit with that because I see how hard it is for her sometimes. Uh, well, I think you bring up a good point, not to interrupt your train no, of thought no, please, here. go ahead. But because I think our society today, especially with a lot of the millennial population and now the Gen Z population, their value is predicated on who likes you. That's right. Well, that's where influencers are right. so popular. Right. So now, so dependency has a whole new meaning to it now. Yes. In the, in, in with these generations that they're going to have to overcome in a, in a healthy way, because, you know, I see it in my own kids right now in terms of the, the social media influence and how it really is unhealthy. Yes. In that way. And, and learning how to live life through TikTok. It's probably not going to do yourself any favors. Now, I, I, I've denigrated your your evolution of your romance and in partnership with your wife. So, but I, I wanted to bring that that point up, though, that right. dependency is is having a whole different look now, especially people listening that maybe millennials, Gen Zers, and or have those as as children right now, because right. I am a little cautious that healthy relationships, not only with themselves, but healthy relationships with others um, 
may not happen. Yeah, I, and I don't disagree with you. It's a, it's something that frightens me a great deal. But uh, if I can get back to just answering your yeah, question, yeah, I fully, apologize for interrupting that. You, you, when when I talk about being a difficult person, it gives me a perspective. If we're in an argument with each other, to take a step back and go, how important is this that I get my that I'm right and that I get my point across, or does it really matter that much? And should I just be grateful that most of the time she's willing to put up with me? Not because I'm an unloving, diff, you know, terrible person, but because it's, it's, you know, I think sometimes it's hard to be in a relationship with me. So with that kind of uh, compassion for others, <laughs> it makes it easier for me not to be such a hard ass when it comes to her. And, you know, proving a point and having to be right and all that stuff, because that, that does nothing but create resentment and difficulty amongst people. So you've learned to live with each other uh-huh. over time. You, you've yes. you've learned to have the difficult conversations with each other that that yes. probably aren't malicious, but they don't make you feel um, good about yourself when you, when you have to have those conversations. But they have to be had. Well, right? I mean, the biggest problem I have right now is that I'm physically pretty much disabled in a lot of ways, and I've never been this way before in my life. I've always been an incredibly adventurous, really uh, fun-loving physical person. And now the only activity that I can remotely do with some degree of safety is walk, right? People say, well, what do you do now? And I say, my extreme sport is stepping up a curb and not falling, (laughs) right? Actually going up a 3% gradient. (laughs) Exactly. And so I have said to my wife many times, you know, I am really sorry. I never expected that I would become this person in our marriage and you're still so healthy and are so able to travel and do everything that you want to do. So what I've encouraged her to do actually is to travel with friends and family so that she doesn't feel resentful and not to worry about leaving me behind because I, I can't do what, what I believe is my responsibility in a marriage to do. And so I'm happy that she has other people that will do those things with her. And I do the best I can for us to have fun together and, and, uh, you, you know, be with each other. But it has been a problem. And I've said to her many times, are you sure that you don't want to send me off on an iceberg somewhere and find a replacement? <laughs> and she just rolls her eyes and looks at me like I'm an idiot because she still loves me and, and wants to be with me, despite the fact that I'm not the same person in a lot of ways that she married. So I think you brought up an interesting point there, too, because you have, I don't want to call it a disability, but you can't do the same things you could do five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, for sure. Yeah. But your wife still has to live her life and, and, uh-huh. and get fulfillment, satisfaction, see places, see people. And again, I think if, if she were feeling completely dependent upon you, she probably wouldn't do that, right? She wouldn't be traveling with her friends and, or she'd be worried about you or, or worried about, he's going to be mad at me if I do this. Right. And again, I, she's not here to, to, to answer that question, but as her husband, you probably know the answer to that. Well, we've right? talked a lot about it. Because um, I, because I do see, I do see, and it's not just wife, but I see, see men do the same thing, right? Uh-huh. That they, they hold the other spouse back, whether it's jealousy um, or whether it's dependent on them, they just don't want to see them do something without them. Right. And I, I, I recognize that as being an incredibly unhealthy way to live. Um, I, it, when my wife and I first got together, she lived in another city 
and was contemplating moving to Santa Barbara. And uh, she said to me, you know, if I move, what do you want from me? And I said to her, not a lot, but there is one thing that's really, really important to me. And she was very puzzled by that statement. I said, well, she said, well, what is it? And I said, if you move to Santa Barbara, you have to promise me that you'll make friends as quickly as possible. And she thought, well, why is that your requirement? And my response was, because if you're just relying on me, first of all, you're going to be bored to death in a really short period of time because I am a barbarian compared to the way you live your life, right? I'm not going to the opera. I'm not going to the ballet. And I'm not going to any big city to celebrate whatever it is that big cities have to offer. I'm actually quite limited in terms of the things that I really love. You're going to have to get used to going on vacation to tropical places where I can go surfing and, or to the mountains, which I really love. But there's a lot that I don't like that you really like. And I don't want you to be resentful. So you've got to make some friends really quickly so that you can do the stuff that you want to do. And I can do the stuff I want to do, and it won't cause a problem in our marriage. So, so right from the beginning, we made agreements that um, that it's okay to get your needs met uh, in those particular ways with other people, because otherwise, what I see when people, uh, you know, don't have balanced lives in those ways, and they're just relying on each other, it causes so much strain in the relationship. Because who's going to be everything for everyone? Plus, as a man, and you well know this, the way you talk to other men, if you ever talk to any woman in your life the way you talk to other men, they'd never speak to you again. They look at you like you're the biggest, you know, 12-year-old, 13-year-old in the world, and you're disgusting. It would be true, though. Right? And it is true. So my wife knows this, and she knows why I love to hang with my friends, because we're disgusting when we're hanging out with each other, but we don't disgust each other. We actually love having those kind of conversations, and... And I know that the kind of conversations she has with her women friends are not the kind of conversations that I would have very often anyway with my male friends. Um, and so that balance is really necessary. There's a common denominator in, in not only everything that we've talked about in the, in the podcast, but, but certainly in, in these relationship episodes that we're doing right now. Um, and, and I think you'll agree with me. It's, it's knowing yourself first, oh, absolutely, right? absolutely, Kim. And, and doing the work, doing the, the conscious introspection, because that's where it starts. If you don't know yourself and you don't know who you are or, or why you're here or what you're doing in this relationship, then nothing's going to work. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And you know that about being connected to your intuition, that if you're willing to be dependent on your intuition without question, to me, that's a, that, that is the secret to a, a life not without pain, but certainly a life where you're pretty clear about how you want to be and what you want to be and where you want to go and how you want to do it. So again, I am helplessly, in a certain way, dependent on my intuition. I don't ever question it. I don't mess with it in any way. I treat it with the kind of respect that it deserves. And I believe that it's a spiritual connection to my version of God or whatever you want to call it. And again, that makes me extremely dependent on it because it's the central part of my life. So I'm thinking that a lot of people listening to this episode are thinking, well, so what happened? So I'm, I've been peeling off the layers and trying to get to the core to, to kind of know myself better and, and understand why I make the decisions I make, but my partner's unwilling to do that. 
And as we talk about relationships, um, you know, that can, that can start bringing down the house when that happens. Well, as a therapist, it's probably one of the saddest parts of my professional life that I feel a really strong obligation when someone comes to see me to help them to the best of my ability. And if their partner is not along for the ride and doesn't decide to do their own work, it does create an imbalance. And sometimes it actually ends a relationship because um, uh, the, the more you get to know yourself, the more true you're going to be to yourself. The less like your friend, you're going to avoid having conversations that really need to happen. And those conversations are not comfortable. And some people don't want to have those conversations. That's not what they signed up for. They just, they signed up for a relatively superficial connection with their partner because it feels safe to them. So yeah, you're right. It does create a serious problem. And I will say a lot of times when people start to see their partner changing in a way that seems healthy, initially they get frightened by it. But oftentimes they feel compelled to sort of uh, see if they can feel better about themselves in the same way that it seems their partner is feeling better. So it doesn't always turn out poorly, but it can. And you're right about that because I always feel sad when, um, you know, somebody makes a choice to leave a relationship because their partner absolutely has stayed the same and they've evolved to a place where they're much kinder to themselves and more connected to themselves. You and I talked about the concept of, of counseling prior to getting into a relationship or maybe something that should happen in your teenage years in, ter- in, in terms of what we talked about, the conscious introspection and, and really knowing who you are and what makes uh-huh. you tick and then being able to pick the right partner. Now, I get it that the divorce attorney lobby and probably <laughs> the, the, uh, the psychology lobby would be totally <laughs> against that. <laughs> Because I'm sure that the that that uh, two thirds divorce rate would be cut down to about a quarter or less if that was the case. Uh huh. So, and I'm only speaking by experience because I am a single guy that 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 does date. Um, and only through trial and ex and experience have I finally figured out who I want to draw into my life. It, okay. it it surely wasn't as a teenager. Surely wasn't you know, um, in my twenties, I, I, I did fall in love with somebody that I was married to for, for 11 years that, that had a lot of good to it and, and some not so good to it. And, and in hindsight, would I, you know, if I would have known now what I knew then, would I have married the person more than likely not? Yeah. Um, and, and she'd probably say the same thing. So I'm not, you know, calling her out. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is it, 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 I think it's just so important that you do the work on yourself because I would still be making that familiar choice and attracting that type of person into my life. And when I meet that person now, I know because there's a red stop sign in front of them immediately now that, that instead of that familiar feeling, now it's that odd feeling like this like you said, it's not the good visceral feeling, it's the bad visceral feeling. Right. And uh, again, I had to do it through trial and error to finally get to that place. And again, I have to be cognizant of that and listen to my intuition now. 
that, oh, they're really attractive, but man, I'm not getting that visceral feeling. And they're talking about stuff that's really familiar that I've been trying to get away from. Um, so again, going back to the concept of, of having relationship counseling early on in your life would probably be very helpful. Or, mm. or, or at least the, the aspect of, let me help you get to know yourself better. I mean, you're preaching to the choir, Kim. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you know, we're, again, you're, some of the stuff that you do in your profession is proactive, but a lot of it's reactive, right? Yes. Because people don't just come here because they feel great and I need to go see a psychologist or my relationship's going great, but I need to see a psychologist. Right. Either I feel something's wrong with me, somebody's told me something's wrong with me, my husband, my wife has told me that there's something wrong with a relationship and that's why we end up here. Right. Right. Uh-huh. So I'm trying to tell everybody, be proactive, not yes. reactive. Right. Because re- reactive doesn't have the, the same resolution as being proactive does. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know it's a long time ago, but the first young woman that I ever fell madly in love with, um, I, I, when I first got together with her, I was so stunned that somebody that looked like her and was as kind and sweet as her would have anything to do with me. And I was just so enamored with her that I didn't really pay attention, you know, to what she brought to the table. I just dove in head first, fell madly in love with this girl and believed that she was the woman of my dreams. And, oh, probably within a year or so, my friends started to tell me that, uh, uh, that she was actually sleeping with every guy in the neighborhood. And I didn't know it. And then when I found out that it was actually true, I was devastated. It just absolutely shattered me and broke my heart. And I realized at the time that, uh, uh, well, I started to go to therapy at that time to figure out, you know, what the hell was going on. And part of what I came to understand is that um, I was not being loyal to myself. I was not being faithful to myself. And so the natural person that I would attract would be somebody who treated me the way that I have felt about myself. And I think that that's something that's really important for people to understand that um, it's so much easier to blame her for being a whore than it is for me uh, to take responsibility for the fact that I overlooked so much because of the way I felt about myself as a person. I was going to say, there's always a common denominator in all your problems. Yes, and, and, it's, it's, you. and it's you. <laughs> that's right. right. But most people have a hard time accepting that because it's so much easier to be and see yourself as a victim. Right. I know that oh, we're, absolutely we're talking about relationships now, but this brings up it happens on a micro level and on a macro level. And uh, I know I'm kind of switching the subject, but I am always fascinated that 47 million people voted for Donald Trump in the last <laughs> election, because it is so far beyond my comprehension that anybody could be in my mind. And I know this is not a nice thing to say. could be that stupid. Right. But it can't be stupidity. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, so what did he bring to the table that's so attractive to people? And what I came to realize is that there are lots of people who feel helpless and feel victimized in our country. And that he knows how to appeal to people that feel victimized and helpless and feel like they've tried everything that there is to try to redeem themselves and where they live. And most of the people in the country live in places where the economy is not that great and that the reason that the, the downtown areas of those 
places are empty is not because there's rich people own those buildings and they don't care if they're rented or not. It's mostly because economically the places are a disaster. And, you know, he'd go to the steel places and he'd go to the all the industrial places that have been destroyed by uh, technology and all of that stuff. And he'd tell those people, sit back, don't worry, I'll take care of it for you. I'm going to make America great again, like it was before. And people are so desperate that they're willing to uh, uh, look at him like he's Jesus incarnate and he's going to save them from their despair. And he was really good at playing upon people's desperation and need to be saved. And, you know, if you think about it, the Republican Party has been the party of, of being a victim now. And, and it works really well because, you know, when Clinton was running for president, she said, we're going to have to all work together. We're going to work together. And everybody's thinking, I already fucking tried that. That didn't work. We can't work together because there's nothing to work on. And then there's the other person that says, oh, sit back, I'll take care of it for you. Well, who are you going to vote for if you're desperate and, and feel victimized under those circumstances? The one that wants you to try again or the one that's going to take care of it for you? Uh, since we're not Joe Rogan, I, I'm going to get off the political bandwagon for, for just a second. Here. No, we can and, get off of it forever, but I'm just and, saying that this this no, concept I'm, applies of dependency. It applies oh, on a micro oh, no, level. No, I agree with you. We're, we, we, live, we do live in a victim society. Republicans, yeah. Democrats, or independents aside, we live in a victim society, and we're very quick to point fingers, right? Right, that it is somebody else's problem because we don't want to keep our eyes on our own paper right? because we want to place blame on somebody else for our our problems right and it's just i mean unfortunately that's where we ended up that's why a lot of people end up in your office this is why we're writing a book and, and doing a podcast and and, and again it, it's the same t-shirt that i wear it's not about you <laughs> it, you know it, it's like you know figure it out keep your eyes on your own paper and deal with your shit people right you know uh, and in life i'm just gonna tell you Life's going to get a lot better, but I, I don't want to end on, on uh, that, uh, that note. So I want to bring it back to what, how we started this conversation on dependency. And I think you made some really good points about embracing healthy dependency. So I want to end this podcast by you kind of reiterating um, what healthy dependency looks like and feels like. You know, Kim, the image that always comes into my mind are the strands of DNA and when life is created, those strands wrap around each other and make something that's bigger than they would be separate, right? They create a life. And then there's some kind of, in my mind, divine spark that sets off that, that aliveness. And I think that, um, that that's what a healthy relationship should look like, is two separate people that wrap themselves around each other and create something bigger than they would have separately. And it's not that you don't retain your identity and that you don't have a really strong sense of self. It's just that what you create feels really good and secure and relatively comfortable. It's going to have problems, of course. And I'm hoping that, you know, most people will realize that, that when you get into a relationship, that's not the end. That's just the beginning. And that, it, you know, a lot of people think, well, if I have problems with my relationship, that must mean the relationship is a problem. And that's not the case. Who gets a life without problem and pain? It's just part of it. It just depends on, I guess, how solvable those problems are and how much responsibility each person is willing to take in order to try and find a way to keep that connection and that dependency going in a healthy way. 
I think that was really well said. And so I hope people will follow me as I seek healthy dependency. Thanks, Anna. We'll, uh, we'll talk more about relationships in coming episodes here. Thank you, Kim. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Thank you.